0: Yeah, just gonna do a, a hopefully quick late night episode here. I'm using my phone, but I'm in the house. So you could call this a mobile home episode, but I think that has a different meaning. Last I checked that has a different meaning. So this is not a mobile home episode. It's a mobile at home episode. That at is very and a very it's a very important distinction. But uh crossed my mind today, you know, one of the conservative talking points is about schools being too liberal, being too far on the left, which I think is a valid observation. I believe that's a valid observation that schools are, on, are they lean left. Not just colleges, not just universities, but even just the public school system in a lot of places, leans left. The message is more conducive to leftism. And people forget though, The schools have always been too left to conservatives. And you have conservatives now, especially on the younger end of the spectrum. And I see this attitude a lot. Where they they say things like, why can't schools be the same way they were when I was a kid? The way they're doing things now is voice. Why can't things be the way they was when I was a kid? But I was aware even then, like when I first became slowly aware of just what the different political groups talking points were. Like I was a little kid, but when I just first started to observe, because you'd hear them debate about schools and that seemed so strange to me at the time. I still don't really understand those. I still don't know what a charter school is. I barely understand what public and private school are, you know, but you would still hear these debates over schools. And part of that debate, you would hear conservatives back then. Let's say that I first started to notice this in the mid nineties. I was still a kid. I didn't care, but I do remember just starting to pay attention. And then as I became a teenager, I started to pay attention even more, even, even if I, I wasn't even interested in it, I just started to notice that these were talking points that came up again and again. And one of the big debates, of course, was teaching evolution in schools, not teaching creationism. So there was obviously a religiously motivated component to this, but you couldn't separate that religiously motivated component from the Republican Party, from American conservatives. So it's really one in the same, just in the same way that you can't separate something like critical race theory, just like you can't separate that from the modern left, the modern American left. You can't, especially, I I would say the whole left at this point, Uh, I'm not going to say every single person on the left believes that should be taught in schools or agrees with it, but you can see, and and I mean, it's it's the same thing for like the creationism, like there were probably serious Christians in the 90s and early 2000s who were fine with evolution being taught in school. So I'm not trying to paint everybody with the broadest brush imaginable, although that'd be pretty cool because I can imagine a pretty broad brush. I can imagine a big, big, big brush. This is my big, big, big brush. But but anyway, so it's like in the same way that today you can say, okay, this, this critical race idea. You know, you can't separate that from the modern American left. And you couldn't separate this debate about evolution and creationism from the evangelical right. And while they still exist, and they're still probably arguing that point, they're done. Things have moved so beyond them. The debates have moved so beyond this religiously motivated middle American conservativism that even though that still exists, it is so far behind us now. And I mean, it could come back, I don't know, but it seems to be pretty far behind us at this point in terms of cultural and political influence, political currency. They don't seem to be influencing much at this point. I mean, they still have influence, but like I said, they're just, they're not at the forefront. Why don't, why am I going on about this to clarifying so much? Who cares? You know, um, So, anyway, so it's like I I became aware of the fact that conservatives were critical of what was being taught in schools. And that's the most obvious example, but it's not the only criticism you heard. The only criticism you heard wasn't just creationism and evolution, prayer in schools. It wasn't only religiously motivated, that was just the most obvious part of it. But there were a lot of debates raging. And I mean, even me myself, you know, there are things like. You know, not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance and like what you do with kids who don't stand. And, you know, there's a lot in school that is actually much more political than you even realize at the time. And I think many adults do realize it. But the point I'm making here is that. When someone says, when someone who say on the right today looks back and says like schools were so much better when I was a kid, maybe they were better in their mind and I would agree in some ways. I don't know. I I really don't know what schools are like now. I, I would just be, I would be doing some serious remote viewing. I would be a real remote viewer of a man if I tried to tell you I know what it's like to be in an elementary school today. My abilities would be way beyond. I would be the most humble man on the planet who just omitted the fact that he remote views into schools. I'm able to penetrate the walls of schools and see what goes on. You know, I, you know, I would be really holding something back if I were able to do that. Because um, you know I would be talking about it. You know I'd be bragging about it. Oh, today I remote-viewed into a junior high, and you wouldn't believe what this teacher was saying to the kid. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm a remote-viewer, but I only remote-view things that upset me. But, uh, why don't you remote-view back to where you're at? I think you're forgetting where you're even at. Remote view back to your kitchen. Remote view back to earth. Sometimes the hardest thing of all is to remote view exactly where you're at. Because you're not living in the moment. Why don't you live in the moment and remote view exactly where you're at right now, okay? But anyway, when someone looks back and they're like, schools were so much better when I was a kid, even if they were like, you know, even if you're a diehard conservative today and you look back at the way schools were in 1993 and you're like, they were better then. They were less influenced by the liberal machine. The, the neo-liberal machine had less influence on schools in 1993. But still, if you were to go back to 1993, you'd be hearing real conservatives then saying schools are just beyond the pale schools are just a portal to hell the stuff they're teaching kids is you know it's communist propaganda which some of it was like when I look back I think about some of the messages and stuff that they were sending and while some of it was based around the idea of community which I wanted this to be a quick episode but maybe that needs to be talked about I'll just I'll If I, if I, if it comes up again, I'll talk about what I want to say about the word community. Uh, But, you know, just, just like, you know, I think there are certain messages that kids were being taught in 1993 that conservatives at the time thought were just the worst thing in the world. And so it's just, I mean, like what this, what, what all this comes down to is the fact that the main stance of conservatism is to be defensive and to hold your ground. But that gra- they're continually losing ground. You know, because most conservatives don't come from a place of, we need to go back to 1822. We need to go back and live like the people in 1776. You know, nobody actually wants to do that, like return to a, some sort of rustic, antiquated way of living. You know, the people who want to do that are actual LARPers. I'm trying not to use the word LARP as much because I realize that it's made its way. You know, I've mentioned before how like slang and like cute terms that get invented on the internet, things that the youth say, they make it to old people. They make it to uncool people much quicker than they do now. And I've seen a couple people. One of them was that Texas politician who's supposed to be like young and hip He's like this the ultimate Gen X politician. Like I saw him use the term LARP and I was like, ah, I can't use it anymore. Can't use it anymore. So I'm trying to avoid using it. It's just that LARP, you know, it was, it was such a good way of describing things. So I'll just say role playing or something from now on. I'll just, I'll avoid that. But I'm actually—but the thing is, I, I'm still going to say LARP if I'm talking about actual LARPers. I'm still going to use the term LARP, if I'm talking about cosplayers, if I'm actually talking about real live-action role players, I'm still going to use the word that was created for them. I'm just going to try not to use it about random people who are playing a role. All because Beto Rourke, Beto, Beto Rourke, all because he used the word LARP, I just don't want to use it anymore. But anyway, like real LARPers, like some of them, not all of them, but there's there's some of them who do legitimately want to live in a previous time period and might even try to. Like there are people who run, there's some people, I think they're kind of like friends of, of a friend. There's some distant connection, but I became aware of them. And they run a bed and breakfast that's Victorian era. And it has no technology that wasn't available in the Victorian era and they live a victorian lifestyle or whatever whatever you know whatever you can learn from studying the victorian lifestyle but they eat that way they live that way they do not use technology from i mean they obviously they do they're not i mean i mean i'm not talking about the amish here they obviously use computers and phones and stuff you know they run a business and things but point being a lot of their life is dedicated to living in this antiquated way, and it's almost fetishistic. And then there are also LARPers, you know. I mean, that's LARPing pretty much. I mean, it's cosplaying, but it's also, like, really dedicating yourself to it. But that's not most conservatives. Like, the average conservative isn't thinking, God, these liberals are stopping me from going back and living in a a completely Victorian-era lifestyle. Why are you stopping me? Are you? You know, that's not what most conservatives want. Most conservatives, again, it goes back to like what I was saying about the school thing. A lot of conservatives are coming from the place of, I wish things were the way they were when I was a kid. I wish things were the way they were when I was a kid. What, you mean new? New to you? Exciting? Exciting? Because a lot of that, I think, comes from just the disillusionment of adulthood, too. Not all of it, but some of it comes from the disillusionment of adulthood, which is like things are less exciting as you get older, culture is more upsetting, (laughs) aesthetics seem to grow worse. And I I believe that part of that is just the enchantment of childhood. So it's like when when conservatives think like, God, if things were just the way they were were when I was a kid. Well, it's like you had the enchantment of childhood. Not to say there weren't things that were better, because I agree with some aspects of that. I wish a lot of things were the same way they were when I was a kid. But I try not to be unrealistic about it. And that's sort of always where the conservative comes from is they're not coming from the place of like most of them aren't coming from the place of like things should be. And they point to some distant time in history when they feel that the conservative ideal or whatever their own principles were, were being lived out perfectly by the civilization. You know, it's like, that's usually not what they're saying. They just want things to go back like 20 years and they'd be happy. But again, they're always losing ground. And there's going to be people born today or, or who were born 10 years ago who look back and they're going to be like, God, you know, I, as a conservative, I just want things to go back to the way they were in 2021. I just want things to go back to 2021 when, you know, b- before they made me go in women's bathrooms upside down with an upside-down cross hanging from my big toe. They took my kid away, and they made my kid go into a... They made my daughter go into a men's restroom upside-down with a, a a fake tattoo of a pentagram, because that's what the liberals are making us do. I don't know. This is Stupid. Stupid. I'm just saying, though, that it's like somebody is going to look back today and be like, 2021, when we still had a a little bit of the conservative ideal. Let's go back to then. And it's kind of easy to get stuck in that. You know, it's easy to get stuck in that way of thinking where you just don't want things to change. And, I mean, I'm a person who thinks things aren't changing for the better. Some ways they are. I mean, you never want to say that everything is changing. You know, there, there's, there are good things that are happening along with the bad, but, and I wouldn't even say that a lot of it's necessarily bad because I don't really know how it's all going to work out. I would just say, I, I would just say that I'm less engaged. I'm averse to many of the directions, and there are many, many directions that people are trying to not guide, but force our civilization. So that's where I would put myself. And I've mentioned before that I'm just a naturally conservative person who, I kind of, I I relate to that idea of holding your ground. I relate to that idea of defense, where you're playing defense. Except that I I don't know that I feel the need to really defend anything that can't defend itself I guess that's where I come from where you know obviously I talk about free speech a lot on here and I won't go into that again but I will say that defends free speech defends itself and it also needs other people to defend it You know, I'm not so naive that I believe that, oh, if, if nobody does anything or says anything in favor of free speech, that free speech is so powerful it will just eventually shine its bright lights again. No, I think people do need to support free speech. People do need to be vocal in their support of free speech and what that means to them. But what makes that particularly attractive to me is the fact that the idea of free speech itself is so strong. The idea is so strong, and it does so much in principle to defend itself. It's almost like wanting to help somebody who's already helping themselves. Like if you're just helping somebody all the time, and it's always just you carrying the load, like you're always the one doing everything to help them, at some point you're going to want to stop helping them. Or you might not even want to help them to begin with. But if you feel like somebody is actually making an effort to help themselves, and let's say they do still need a little bit of a push, a little bit of a lending hand, you're more likely to want to do it, and you're going to feel better about doing it if you feel like they're doing their part too. And that's how I feel about good ideas. That's how I feel about the things that I truly support and want to support. I feel like they are generating something unto themselves, and because of their ideas, they need some sort of defense from people. They need the support of people. And it, it feels good to support them because you feel like, yeah, it, I'm saying something about this. I'm addressing this. I'm putting some kind of effort to, to help this thing stay afloat. But it's also doing something itself. It's also trying to stay afloat itself. It's in its very nature to stay afloat. So hopefully that makes sense, the idea that some ideas are so good that they defend themselves and they also require people to defend them. Because it turns out it's some of the ideas that actually have their own defense built in. Sometimes those are the ideas that people want to attack the most. They want to undermine them the most. Because it turns out people who want to exercise power no matter who they are, they tend to chip away at free speech. They chip away at it. Sometimes they eventually get big chunks. But fortunately, it regenerates, you know, but it it requires people. You know, I'm not particularly critical of the conservative who has that short memory who's just like I just want things to be they were when I was a kid and I mean there's a natural conservatism like even me like when I say that I'm naturally conservative that's not limited to any one particular field of interest I'm the sort of person who just naturally like it could be a video game system like there was a certain point in time where I stopped playing video games I think I was you know pretty you know maybe halfway through high school I I really only play them occasionally after that, but I wasn't the biggest gamer around. I'm the biggest gamer around. Hey, you know me. I'm the biggest gamer around. Now, I wasn't the biggest gamer around before that, but I I still, I played, I I played a lot of role-playing games, these games that took like 60, 70 hours to beat, to complete, to beat and complete. And at some point, I stopped playing them. But then to me, like, all video game systems after that are somehow inferior. All video games after that are inferior. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I bet there were some good ones. I bet there were some good games after I stopped paying attention. But I still look at modern games, and I'm just like, these aren't good. These aren't as good. Oh, wow, like, the graphics are closer and closer to looking like real life. Was that the point of video games? Was the point of video games all along just to eventually turn them into real life? I guess you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise do, but I never completely understood that about graphics. And so I'm conservative about graphics even, see? Where like my idea is that role-playing games never should have moved beyond pixel art. You know, I'm like, role-playing games, role-playing game characters never should have looked like anything except smudges of pixels, and your imagination does crazy things with that. Like, back when I used to play the early Final Fantasy games, and I would look at these characters, and I didn't know anything else. But the things that my brain saw in those little smudges of pixels, you know, it's bizarre. But it's, so, it's kind of like reading a book in that way, where when you read a book, it doesn't matter how descriptive, it doesn't matter how detailed the descriptions are of characters. Your brain does some sort of equation. Your brain has some way of putting an image in your mind of what this character looks like. And sometimes books will do this thing where they introduce a character and the character is in the story for a while. And when that happens, you've already kind of rendered an image of them and then at some point, like it doesn't have to be later in the book or anything, but just at some point after you've already established this idea in your head of what this character looks like, they'll they'll say something, they'll describe a quality they have. They'll be like his long red hair. That happened to me in a book. It was one of the books I read about the Scottish tribes. Uh, which one was that? It was good i have to think, but, but anyways, describing a character and then, you know, it didn't really describe what he physically looked like. And then there was a battle scene later on and then it described his long red hair. And I was like, oh, I didn't, that's not what I was imagining. And so you're given this cognitive dissonance that actually has no reason for being there, but it's because your imagination rendered this image of this character you know, even without any, there there was, there was nothing that, there was, there was, uh, I'm just stuttering, I'm stammering and stuttering. Basically, they didn't give any kind of description of the character, but your brain still created something. And that's interesting, when you read a book, after having already seen the movie version of the book, it's very difficult not to see the movie characters, like that still happens to me with The Outsiders, Lord of the Rings. And I don't love it, but I also, in those cases, I don't hate it. In those cases, the actors were well-chosen and everything. But it's very difficult for me when I read those books not to see the actors. Whereas I never saw the Hobbit movies. I watched part of one and turned it off. wasn't doing it for me. But, you know, maybe, I don't know. I also, you know, I don't know. Maybe I read The Hobbit before... I I saw that glimpse of the movie, so maybe that factored in, too. But either way, you know, it's interesting how if you've seen a movie and then you read the book, your brain has a very hard time not seeing those characters, even if the descriptions are different. Like, you think about the Outsiders or the character Dally. In the book, I believe he's a towhead. He's described as having very light blonde hair. What they call a towhead. But then in the movie, he's Matt Dillon, and he has dark brown hair. And it's okay, though. It's like your, your mind can deal with that. But it is funny how your, imagine, your imagination creates this cognitive dissonance in that, where like you're imagining the character looking a different way than they actually were intended. And then when you're reminded of that or introduced to the fact that the character has long red hair, your brain's kind of like, wait a second. You know, I, I already created this in my head. And I mean, there's sort of like a conservatism, too, to just that idea of the books and movies, where there's a certain sort of person who's a fan of a book. I mean, I think that is sort of a conservative versus progressive attitude. I mean, I think that is a good illustration of how those same attitudes play out just with entertainment, just with the things that interest them, where there's a certain sort of person. And I believe a lot of it is just the way they're wired. And when they hear that somebody is making a movie of one of their favorite books or just a book they really liked, their default is to be like, "Ugh, the book is always better than the movie. They shouldn't even make a movie. Shouldn't even make a movie. And that's more me. Because you think like this movie might suck. It's not even that you know the movie's going to suck, but your brain says this movie might suck. And if this movie sucks, that's going to damage the overall legacy of this book that I really like. It's going to not even you don't even think about that. I don't even think about the legacy. But it's kind of like destroying the tradition. It's messing with something that already works. And I think that's kind of part of the conservative impulse. It's like, why are you meddling with this thing that already works? It's always worked for us. But often that thing is just in your lifetime. Like if you're born into a world where a movie already exists, like I didn't go back and look through old movies and books and be like, God, it sucks that they made a movie out of that. Like, like I didn't watch the Godfather and say, God, why did they make this movie? The book was good enough. I tried reading the Godfather book and I put it down. You'd think that I would have already read it. A hundred times based on my interests, but I was reading it and I, like, reading it, I was like, this isn't as good as the movie. This is not as good as the movie. So, I mean, there are exceptions, and I I wouldn't even say it's a rule. I wouldn't even say there's anything inherently bad about movies that are based on books. I would just say that my natural tendency, my default is to be skeptical, if not cynical of it, is to think, like, oh God, what are they going to do with this thing that I care about? Like, the principle of it. But also there's this sort of fear that something bad will come of it, that it will somehow like undermine something of value. (laughs) And that's just a default. I mean, I feel the same way sometimes when I hear that. And I mean, but I mean, too, I want to finish that thought. Because there's also a certain sort of person that hears that somebody's making a movie out of a book they like and they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, making a movie out of the book that I love. I'm going to love the movie too. You know, th- there's a certain sort of person that they're looking forward to it and they might be disappointed. And the person who's skeptical of the movie might see it and be like, it's exactly what I thought. It sucks. God, It sucks. But they also might be surprised. They might like it. And I mean, I think a good example of that is they just released a trailer for the upcoming Sopranos prequel. And as a diehard Sopranos fan, I've actually been skeptical. I've been cynical a little bit. No, I, I, I wouldn't say I've been cynical at this point. I would say I've been skeptical. My attitude has been, I'll see it. And I'll have no expectations. I'm going to have no expectations, aside from the fact that I hope that it immerses me in that world again. If there's a good story on top of that, that's all I want. But if I, for those two hours, if I feel like, even though it's a prequel and it takes place in another decade, which is awesome, that's going to be cool. But, you know, you know even if, um, you know, if nothing else, if the only thing I feel is that I'm connected to that world again, even if I don't care about the story, if I just feel that kind of immersion into the world of The Sopranos again, that's a a thumbs up from me. So my expectations are low, and I think my expectations are low in part because of that sort of conservative attitude of like, oh boy, they're doing something they don't need to do again. They're making a movie they don't need to make. And that conservative instinct is good too, especially creatively. That thing that makes you think, maybe I don't need to do this. Maybe I don't need to do that. You know, maybe I should have some restraint. But I think the creative process is a constant struggle between sort of a progressive and a conservative impulse. I think there's a constant if not a battle, I mean, I would just say there's a a shifting of weight between those kinds of, I wouldn't call them impulses, I just did. I, I just called them impulses, but I didn't, I don't think I, it just sounded good. I don't know that I really meant that they're impulses. But there is something in me that, like, says, like, I should take this as far as it can go, and that will be someplace better, creatively. If I take this as far as I can possibly take it, that will somehow be better. But then there's this other part of me that says, no, if I keep it the way it is or I boil it down to something even more essential, that's the way to go. Going back to basics is the way to go. So that plays out creatively, you know, I think it plays out just with the way that you even just consume entertainment. And there's different types of people. Like I said, I'd be curious how that does map out politically or socially, you know, the sort of person who says, oh, there's another Star Wars movie coming out. Yeah, I'm not excited. There's a good chance it's going to suck. Versus the person who's just like, I like Star Wars, and I'm excited there's a new Star Wars movie. And maybe it's a, 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 you know, a glass full, glass empty sort of situation, where one person is hoping to see the good in this thing, whereas another person is dreading seeing the bad. And that will probably go into it. And I mean, I think a good example is when the first one of those new Star Wars movies uh, came out. What's it called? Uh, the, the Force Awakens. That was it. And... A good friend of mine messaged me and he was like, go see it, dude. It's amazing. It's a lot like the originals. It's much more like the original movies, not like the prequels. And then the girl I was seeing at the time, too, said that she, she ended up seeing it with her family or something and she was like, it's actually really good. I'm, I want to take you to go see it. You might actually like it because she knew she completely knew how I was. She completely knew how bad my attitude is about new things. And we went and saw it and, you know, I I watched it, but I I honestly didn't like it. You know, it was difficult and I I think I lied. You know, I I didn't want to ruin the night by being an asshole, but I do remember being in the theater with just this sort of feeling of like, I don't like this at all. Like it's, it's, they're trying too hard to make it like the originals. They're just trying too hard and they're not succeeding. Is kind of how I felt. And it just it's just one more thing to add to just this like pointless, endless Star Wars that we live in. It's just we need to live in a world where we never stop making Star Wars. Because Star Wars was good once, we, we need to just keep making it and adding things. I mean, I I think that does fit into everything I'm talking about where, you know, the progressive viewpoint is we need to keep taking this further. We can keep going further. And the conservative viewpoint is we need to keep things right where they're at. And we need both of those. You know, you need both those. Those two forces are in you. Even though you might have a natural disposition, you might be the person who is cynical about movies based on books you like. Or you might be the person who's just excited. You're enchanted still. Because, I mean, I don't, you know, I I never want to come across critical of that sort of person who gets excited about everything. Who isn't cynical about everything they hear. I mean, there was something that it was in this that old interview with Fenris of Dark Throne, where they went to his house and it was it was it was, it was, it was a wild it was a wild and zany time. So, but he he said something in that interview that's been overlooked. And my friend Miles and I talked about it, and they're talking to Fenris about like new bands and everything, and. He's like, oh yeah. At one point, my friends had to stop telling me who was in new bands, otherwise, I wouldn't like them. Like when my friends would introduce me to a new band, they basically had to hide who the band members were from me. <laughs> and I was like, that's great. That's that is perfect. Uh, but. You know, see, and I mean, you can see that even in, in subgenres. You can see that in different subgenres. These things that were relatively new. I mean, you see that in metal fans. I mean, there's a lot of metal fans who have the attitude of like things need to sound like they did thirty years ago. Things were better then. That was how things should be. And what people are doing now to try to reinvent the wheel, to try to take this thing further, only takes away from what other people already perfected 30 years ago. And you know what? That's how I feel. That's how I feel about certain genres of music. Not, it doesn't mean that it applies down the board 100%, but as a general rule, I say somebody already did it better. It doesn't mean nobody else should ever try to do something similar, but I'm just saying the point stands that somebody did perfect a certain formula and you can't completely recreate that in terms of sound, aesthetic, atmosphere, inspiration, but there's a certain sort of person who sees that and they're like, I'm dedicating myself to that. I'm going to dress like that. And anybody who doesn't dress like that, and anybody who doesn't sound like that, and anybody who doesn't use that aesthetic, you know, screw them. Because we've already established the way to do things. We've established the tradition. Meanwhile, you say, you know, that's only existed since the 80s and 90s that subgenre of metal has only existed since the 80s or 90s and there were people when that was coming out who were saying that like when the, when these things that are now traditional you know when some subgenre of metal is now considered traditional like even let's even go with a, a really obvious one let's go with the most generic example which you'll see bands today called traditional metal and in they're in new bands. You'll see new bands, and they're called traditional heavy metal. Meanwhile, when heavy metal was new, it was anything but traditional. Heavy metal was anything but traditional when it was introduced, but now you look back on that era, and you say, that's traditional, because it was the first incarnation and there's a certain sort of person who says, that's when things were perfect, and things never should have strayed from that. So you see where this plays out continually with everything, where somebody comes up with a new idea for something, and it actually goes against tradition, but then over time it becomes the tradition, it becomes traditional, and people look back on it that way, and they say things were better when, with that, things, things were better when we had that tradition in place, Meanwhile, in the grand scheme of things, it's not very traditional at all. It's still relatively new. Just like your childhood, just like the time period you grew up in, wasn't traditional by the standards of the time. It wasn't necessarily, you know, let's stick with the word tradition rather than getting into political terms and just say that. When you look back at your childhood, if you had a good childhood or if you look back at, you know, any kind of idealized childhood, like even if you even if you didn't grow up in the 1950s, if you look back at the Leave it to Beaver era and you say, that was how things should be, a TV show. Things should be like they were on that TV show. No, but it's like that was not even traditional for its time. Like there was a time where like the idea of a kid having most toys was weird it was like whoa you have action figures that's kind of weird that's not exactly traditional a kid should only play with a wooden horse carved by his his pappy if a young boy's only toy is not a wooden horse carved by his pappy he's not having a real childhood Video games? Because, I mean, that's how people were about video games. Like, when video games were introduced, there was a lot of pushback. There was still a lot of pushback, as I've talked about, about TV. Like, you hear people today talk about how staring at a screen all day hurts your eyes. You still hear that? Oh, staring at a computer screen all day hurts your eyes. It'll strain your eyes. You're going to need glasses. I see you over there, son. I seen you. Your, your face was like an inch away from the screen. Who's going to pay for those glasses that you're going to need? Hey, son, who's going to pay for your glasses? You got your nose practically touching the screen. You know, you still hear people talk a lot about how like too much quote unquote screen time will damage your eyes. But that's pretty tame compared to what people were saying when I was growing up, which is that if you watch TV, it'll rot your brain. I told, I've talked on here about the family I knew where they limited their son to one hour of TV a day. Maybe that's the right decision. I don't know. Maybe my brain was rotted because I was allowed to watch as much TV as I wanted. Maybe my good friends, all of our brains were rotten. And that's why we were friends, because our parents allowed us to watch a bunch of TV. But a lot of it was this fear. Because it wasn't just fear. Like, like that hour a day of, t- of screen time that my friend was given as a kid that wasn't to protect his eyes it was because like his parents who were not religious they voted for bill clinton because i remember it um speaking of becoming politically aware that was like around the time like the first bill clinton election i was friends with that kid and they announced that bill clinton had won the presidential election when we were in class like we were in elementary school like first or second grade whatever year that was 92 I guess and uh, they announced I think it was first grade and they announced on the intercom in school that Bill Clinton had just won the presidential election and the kids in the room like you could have told them anything and they would have had the same face just blank it meant nothing to them like you could have told them you know oh Bob the janitor. Just took a piss in the bathroom and didn't flush it. And I don't know, I don't know what. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But their faces would have been the same. Uh, Excuse me, children, we have an announcement to make. Breaking news Bob the janitor just took a pee in the women's bathroom and did not flush it. He's been doing it quite frequently. But uh, yeah, the, the point is, is though they announced that they, they announced that Bill Clinton won the election. And my friend, this kid, he goes, yes, he did the arm thing. And I just did it. So, you know, like he, he did the uh, like where you like pump you where you pump your arm like, you know, yes, which kids did a lot then. And I remember being like surprised because I kind of knew who Bill Clinton was. You know, I was just starting to pay attention to things like that. Just not even, not even in any kind of invested way. You just start to notice things. Oh, this guy's on TV all the time. This is our president. You're going to notice him eventually. At some point in your childhood, you notice the president. But I, I remember at the time, I was just like, whoa. Like even back then I knew like, oh, that means his parents like him. Because my friend went, Yes! When Bill Clinton was announced as the winner, that means that his parents are really happy about it. And this kid, he was very precocious. He was very smart. His parents, like, included him in those kinds of conversations and and stuff. So that's why he was excited about Bill Clinton. But they also limited him to an hour of TV time. I wonder how much of that TV time was spent watching the news and Bill Clinton. Maybe that's what the kid was watching. Maybe they limited his TV time because he was obsessed with the news. No, but the idea was like the the limited TV time was not to protect his eyes from damage. It was to protect his brain. But we've completely thrown that idea out the window. Like even though people give all these cautions about the internet and social media or it's like we've completely thrown out the idea like tv is just seen as you know people talk about it brainwashing you they talk about political agendas on the news but nobody really worries about tv rotting your brain not in the same way they did then but all of that comes from this reluctance to you know all of that comes from this sort of uh, this re- reluctance to embrace the new this skepticism toward the new And not just skepticism, but this fear that it's damaging in some way. This idea that like TV came to be. It's a way of of showing, it allows them to read the news out loud to you every night. And it allows them to show you theater, something you used to have to go and see physically. It allows them to put theater acts in your home. And then it mutates from there. But that was basically the idea. It wasn't necessarily giving you anything that you didn't have otherwise. It just gave it to you in your home and at a, a much more, a much higher frequency. You're seeing it much more. But people interpret that as like this thing is going to rot your brain. This thing is bad for you. We have to limit the amount of time we use this thing. But that's out the window more or less. You know, everybody's addicted to looking at The things on screens, but you still see where like when video games came, when video games were new, there was a similar concern. There was a lot of skepticism over video games beyond the fact that there was this reputation that video games are uncool or nerds play them beyond that kind of thing. There was just this more general sort of like, oh yeah, you don't want to play those too much. Oh, you got to limit your kids' Nintendo time. You got to be careful. Video games and, you know, all the ways that video games were blamed as well. You know, even though a lot of that was Democrats, you know, even that was like, that was like Tipper Gore. You can see where that is even a conservative impulse because that's a good example too. That's actually an interesting example where Democrats in the 80s and 90s are not moderates today. I mean, they're on the right. Like Democrat values, Democratic Party values from decades past are conservative today because that shows you that conservatives are always losing ground. So conservatives from the past seem either further right in many cases than they actually were at the time. And people who are on the left also seem further right because everything else has shifted left. And that seems undeniable Undeniable to me. Like I would like to actually see a coherent argument otherwise. And I deliberately seek this stuff out. I have not seen a coherent argument explaining how things have shifted right culturally, politically. I just don't necessarily see it. Maybe I'm missing something politically. I'd be readily willing to admit that I could be unaware of, of some kind of nuance to modern politics where they actually have shifted right or, I mean, obviously certain parts of them have shifted right, but I do think that the right wing tends to lose more ground. So as a rule, so I'd be surprised if overall things have shifted right. Um, And maybe they, maybe they go back and forth. I don't know. This isn't, this is not an interesting thing to discuss because I'm, I'm already bored by it myself and I'm the one saying it i would like to hear an argument though i would like and i'm sure that i could google it and i could find all kinds of nonsense that'll bore me so i just don't even need to know i don't even need to know but like i'm at war with that myself because i'm not somebody who would ever be comfortable just following tradition to the letter i do have to do things my own way even in my own environment i do That's how I know there is something almost pathological about it. Because even in my own environment, when no one's watching, I mean, I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm not saying that I have particularly eccentric decorating taste or anything like that. I'm just even talking about just the general way I do things. I like to kind of put my twist or my stamp on it, no matter what it is. And sometimes I avoid doing that, you know, because I think there's something said to the generic template. And that's the thing that I avoid creatively. Like if I'm doing something creative, I want to avoid, I mean, a a guy I knew, it's funny. There was this guy that I I grew up with who was, he was kind of like one of the other artists like one of the other kids who was drawing all the time. And he was kind of, he was an on-again, off-again friend over the years, you know, until adulthood. And I I lost touch with him years ago, but he painted and he always knew more about like art supplies and that kind of thing, which is, that's like the only reason I wish I went to art school. The only reason that I wish I ever went to art school is because they would teach you a lot about like different kinds of supplies. You would get to test different things. I'm guessing they tell you more about, the practical side of it, like getting prints made. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I know, I know they have resources that you can use, but I've thought about that before. And I was like, you know, obviously I would have learned something from the schooling itself, art school. I'm not saying art school is worthless. I don't think I would have liked being there. I don't think that I personally, in the grand scheme of things would have benefited from being around all those other artists and you know, going through that, you know, in school, I don't know. I just can't see myself wanting to be in that environment. But I do imagine there's some practical stuff that you learn. I imagine there's a lot about supplies and uh, you know the, the different media you can use, and just things that I otherwise wouldn't experience without just wasting money at the art store, which I've done, and then I end up with art supplies that I never even use. You know, it's one of those things where. Like, I've bought things, and I'm like, oh, I'll experiment with this medium. And then it's still in the same box, you know, I just don't end up doing it. But this kid I knew, you know, what was cool about him is that he did seem to know a lot about that stuff. And he was always experimenting with, like, different types of paint. But he just said something that was so simple once, and maybe he heard it somewhere else, I don't know. Uh, But he, he said, like, you don't want it to look like like it's paint right out of the tube. You know, you don't want the colors to look like you got them right out of the tube. And that seems really obvious, but you see a lot of things that look right out of the tube. You see a lot of things that look like they were built using a template and they forgot to hide the template. And I don't know what it is about that, but there's something about that that you know, really turns me off. And I think it's true for a lot of people. Like when you realize that something is simply generic and, uh, or that it was some sort of preset, it was some sort of template, it looks like paint right out of the tube But sometimes I think you you know you do want to just stick to something generic. You know I talked about the asset of being boring on here. And I think it's a form of that. And sometimes it's the very thing that everybody's avoiding which actually makes it somewhat unique. Sometimes nobody is using the template. Sometimes template templates at some point in my life somebody said template And I feel like it rolls off the tongue better than template. So I'm going to continue with template until someone tells me I sound dumb. You sound dumb. But, you know, when everybody is not, you know, when everybody is avoiding the template, like sometimes, sometimes the most generic thing can become refreshing again, I guess is what I'm getting at. And I think that the, the worst manifestation of conservatism kind of takes that to the extreme where they're like, no, the template is the best. The most generic version of this is the best. It's like somebody who who buys a record and takes it out, and like the, the, the white paper sleeve. That the record comes in they're like this is the best part of the record and the reason it's the best is because all records depend on it the white paper sleeve that your 12 inch vinyl record comes in is the best part of it it's the most important part of it and it's a tradition and you can see that with record collectors where when they introduced new sleeves like There are these awful clear plastic sleeves that just, they get all messed up right away. It's really difficult to put a record back into them. They don't keep the record particularly safe. It was just, it was either cheaper or somebody thought it would be a good idea. And they came up with these just awful plastic bags that you put the record in uh, before it goes into the jacket but there's even even though like that's a bad I mean that's a bad example because it's just functionally bad but you can see where like sometimes people will come up with other variations like you'll see where people have updated just certain aspects of i don't know just the sleeve or or just some component of a record and the tendency is to be like this sucks this isn't as good as the classic there's a traditional way to present a record and this isn't it and you can even see that like I even felt that way about jewel cases this is how deep it goes and actually, this isn't deep at all. This is how superficial it gets. It can get more and more superficial. Because even jewel cases, like you think about a CD jewel case, and my entire life, CD jewel cases were a certain way. The only variation I remember on CD jewel cases was at some point, used, all CDs at some point had a black strip of plastic on the far left by the spine. And then at some point they started making that clear and that allowed bands to just add this like extra little strip of artwork, or you could see more of the, the back tray artwork. But that was really the only variation I remember. Other than that, it was just sometimes you would notice like a different quality of jewel case. But the the only real variation that I can remember at that point, like I guess Digipacks came out at a certain point. And I don't know, I don't, I like digipacks on some level. I guess like I've just accepted them because they've been around as long as I've been interested in music. But there is something that kind of sucks about them. They get beat up. The CD falls out, and it immediately like falls out of the the. If, if the CD falls out of the tray, or the teeth of the tray get broken, the CD like will just fall out, and it's like it's you get. I feel like CDs get damaged way easier if they're in a jewel case. Again, on a functional level, they're not as good. They're cool art-wise. It's cool that you can print like wraparound artwork, and you you can do some things artistically. But there's something to be said for the classic jewel case, and that's sort of a conservative tendency too—to be like the jewel case is just better. But it's not perfect. You can find the criticism with with that too. Like jewel cases break really easily, like in the same way that the teeth on a on a Digipak will break more easily on a jewel case like the hinges that connect the like the cover plastic to the back tray like that breaks all the time like I don't even know how many CDs I have probably most of them at this point those hinges are broken so the the front plastic cover just kind of you just pull it off and it just it's an unsatisfying feeling it's like a feeling of impotence and so everything has its problems. Like even though I'm doubling down on the idea that, oh, jewel cases were so much better before they started doing digipacks. And then they came out with new jewel cases that look stupid. They have like rounded edges and and the hinges look all weird I don't know why they came out with those. Probably like some Russian factory started making them really cheap, and people were just like, eh, you know, it's so cheap, let's just get these. But I have CDs like that, and it's just really unappealing. But with those, actually, they might be superior to everything else. Like, those newer, and, you know, by newer, I mean they've been around for... I started seeing them, like, seeing them like 15... I don't know, you probably started seeing them in the mid-2000s more often. They were probably around before that. But they have these kind of rounded edges... If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. They're these like round edge, like the plastic is a little harder. I don't know that I've ever had one of those break, so they might be superior. But just that conservative in me is like, I like the classic square jewel cases. I will allow some variation between that black plastic strip and a clear strip. You know, I, I like a little, you know, I like a little bit of variation, But when it comes to digipacks and, you know, those newer jewel cases, I'm just like, eh, you know, I don't hate them. If it's all I can get, sure. But it's not ideal. It's not what I like. But there's no actual rationale for that. Because as I said, they all have their flaws. So it's really just an aesthetic choice. A big part of it is it's what I grew up with. And there are people who are probably buying those CDs that came in the long boxes cuz really early on i remember you'd see cd's in these big tall boxes and then at some point they stopped making those and so there's probably somebody out there who prefers that they're like i want the long tall boxes you know there was more artwork whatever i don't i don't even know if i ever had any of those so i don't know what what they all entailed the local record store had a Ted Nugent CD that had one of those boxes, like way after you no longer saw those anymore. They still had this Ted Nugent CD like that. So when I, every it's funny too because every time I think of long boxes, the CD long boxes, which is my name. My name is CD Long Boxes. If my name's not CD Long Boxes, uh, but yeah, that's it's like that. I com- completely associate those with Ted Nugent for that simple reason But somebody could be conservative about that and be like CD long boxes are it that was the best way to present CDs the fact that they stopped making it is part of some liberal agenda because you know as much criticism as I do have for not just the liberal agenda but I would just say liberal agendas because I don't think it's all one not all the time, at least. But, you know, as much criticism as I have of that sometimes, I also try to make a distinction between, like, what's some sort of progressive goal? Which I don't, you know, there are progressive goals I like. But, you know, what's, is the thing that I'm responding to an actual aim of some sort of progressive agenda? Or is it just Change? there's a difference between those things and I think sometimes conservatives get hung up on they see change just general change and they automatically associate it with some interest group forcing it and there is plenty of that going on and there's, there's also conservatives doing that there are conservative interest groups that meddle with stuff constantly but I think sometimes conservatives just look at the inevitable change and they say this sucks It sucks that things are changing, and I'm going to blame that change on somebody. And, you know, I don't know. I don't play the blame game one way or another. I try not to, at least. But there's a tendency to get kind of almost supernatural about it, to blame inevitable changes Because you can be guaranteed that human beings will change. If there were people out in this world who could have stayed exactly the same, they would have. And there might be tribes who did that. But I would bet even they've changed. I would bet even in those remote tribes who have had no contact with anybody, who have never developed any modern technology, who are still living like maybe our ancestors lived... I would bet even among that tribe, you find conservative tendencies and progressive tendencies. I would bet even in that tribe, there are disagreements over decisions, over changes they need to make, over different ways of doing things. And some of that is probably rooted in the idea that, oh no, if you do that, it will mess up with the the tradition we have, with the natural order, the way things have always been, what our grandfathers did. There's somebody who probably thinks that within the tribe about something that probably seems relatively minor to us, but then there's somebody else in that tribe who's thinking like, no, we have to, we have to make things better. We have to change things in order to overcome the issues that we that we currently have. Because basically, basically, the idea behind progressivism is that things right now aren't perfect, and the imperfect things need to be abandoned for the greater good. There, And then at worst, that idea is, this situation is fundamentally corrupt and flawed, and we need to destroy it completely and do something completely new. Usually it's somewhere in between. Usually, I think that rests somewhere in between, and I think you can see where it can go off the rails, but I think the kind of the the basic progressive tendency is things are imperfect and or flawed, and we need to change things to remove those flaws because we can make things better, we can make people healthier, we can make people happier. And I should be a liberal politician because that sounded really good, didn't it? But that's the idea. And there's nothing wrong with that idea. I mean, I'm motivated by that idea. If everything were as simple as that, I would just be like, hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. You know, I would. And I do. Like, I mean, as far as that thing I just said, like, how could I not, unless I was just a true misanthrope, how could I not agree with that? But then, you know, the conservative impulse is that when we change things, something bad can directly happen as a result, but there are a lot of indirect things that can happen. We might potentially undermine the security we currently have. And somebody who's a, again, it's like the spectrum, like on the, in the same way on the progressive side, there's somebody who simply sees the current way as imperfect and is motivated by making things more perfect and how that's a healthier way of viewing things than seeing things as more or less flawed on some, you know, fundamental level and wanting to completely change things. You know, in the same way that's a spectrum. You know, on the conservative side, I think the spectrum kind of goes between Like, oh, hey, if we mess with things or if we change things, we're going to lose the things that already matter to us and already work for us. And it's a risk that I don't want to take. I don't want to lose the things that already, you know, function. And there might be unintended consequences, you know, because that's actually a big aspect of conservatism that I don't see talked about enough, is that it's not just immediate consequences, there's a lot more talk about unintended consequences, indirect consequences, and those are hard to measure, but I think they're, they're always worth considering, but that's a part of it, but then there's also a conservative attitude that says, like, things are perfect right now, or, or more importantly, things were perfect before, and you're making them imperfect by trying to change them, so that's an attitude, too. There's that person who's just completely stubborn. And again, the blame game. They're, they're blaming things on this person who they think is messing everything up. Things would be perfect. And then basically what you end up with, and that of course turns into finger pointing. So what you end up with is an attitude that says things would be perfect, but you're deliberately holding us back. And it's imperfect because of that. We are, imp- we are even more imperfect and we're stuck in imperfection because you don't want to make the changes that could make us perfect. You're holding us back. And then that, that person who's getting that finger pointed at them points a finger back and says, no, no, things were perfect 20 years ago. And we got to hold on to what we still have right now. Because the changes that you've been making and trying to make, the things you've been saying to the kids the things you've been teaching the kids, that's making our society imperfect. We were perfect and you're making us imperfect. So you can see where that's the level that those ideas operate on. And we need them both. Those two things in harmony, those two things in tandem, are wonderful. It's just... incredibly difficult for them to be in harmony on a societal level but on a personal level because as i've been saying this whole dang time those two things are in you too and they're not always competing they're also complementary you have conservative tendencies you have progressive tendencies you have somewhere in between tendencies and then you have a certain baseline whether it's just the way you were born whether it's The environment you were raised in. I mean, some people are heavily influenced by their parents' politics. I wouldn't say I'm not influenced by them, but I I wouldn't say that they really made me think the way I do. I think I've kind of arrived to my whatever counts for my political views. Hopefully, more or less on my own. Um, but uh. You know, you have both of those things in you, but you also probably have tendencies. Like in the same way that my tendency is to be cynical about new things. But where that gets weird is the fact that I create things. Where that gets strange is the fact that as much as I do embrace certain aspects of tradition, there's also this part of me that wants to break tradition. There's also this part of me that wants to rebel against that. There's a part of me that is extremely wary and cynical about new things. Like when I hear that a band I like is releasing a new album, especially if they've already released bad albums or they've been on a streak of albums that I'm not interested in, my attitude is, oh no, like why do you guys have to mess with this? Like there aren't nearly enough bands who just release an album and say, that was perfect. Let's move on. You're far more likely to find people who go past their shelf life, to keep trying. And some bands keep making good albums indefinitely. There are some, you know, very few, but there are some artists, bands who have never done anything wrong. Everything made sense. Everything was worth listening to, if not great. Those exist, you know, and it's a lot of it's subjective, but there's also this, just this built-in tendency that, like, unless something big happens to stop this, we're just going to keep doing it forever. Kind of like Star Wars. I was just talking about how, at some point, they decided, like, oh, yeah, you know, Star Wars, let's start making new ones, and then let's just keep doing it forever. You know, when I was a kid and got into Star Wars... You know, the most recent one had come out like over ten years earlier. Or about probably about ten years earlier. I don't I can't I can never remember when Return of the Jedi came out, if it was like 83 or 81. I don't know. But I either way, it'd been about a decade, let's say, since Star Wars had been in theaters when I discovered it. And that made it better in some way. It was like this time had passed, you know. You know, there was still a lot left to the imagination about that world. But you know, a chunk of time had passed so you knew you, know, you weren't expecting another installment. You were just like, this is Star Wars. These three movies are Star Wars. And that's amazing because you're just like, this is a total package and I love it. I loved Star Wars and the fact that it was just this a bow was tied around it. It's these three movies. I love everything about them. I'm so glad I found this. And then they announced that the new ones were coming out, the prequels and all that. And I I was young enough when they announced those to where I was excited. It was like, you're telling me they're making new Star Wars? You're telling me they're making new Star Wars? You're telling me they're making new Star Wars? Stars? (laughs) Star Wars just becomes stars. You're telling me they're making new stars? (laughs) You're telling me they're making new stars. Um (laughs) <laughs> uh, but uh like just the idea though that like we need to start doing this again and, and I was a kid so I was still enchanted because as a kid you're still enchanted and these new movies were coming out and you're just like this is great this is amazing new Star Wars who would have known and they sucked but as I've mentioned before like it's good it's a good thing that the new Star Wars movie sucked at that time because the first one came out when I was in seventh grade and that was the exact age that I needed I, I really needed to move on from Star Wars. And so it's a blessing in disguise that the prequels sucked. And the contrarian in me wants to like the prequels. And I've actually heard some kind of interesting explanations for why to appreciate them. But you know, I, I I truly don't. You know, in the in the what I I think I would put it this way. Using like the scale that I would use like Like, well, just going back to like the Sopranos, like I mentioned the Sopranos prequel, like all I want from that is for it to give me the same feeling. Like I want to feel like I'm in that same world. The story doesn't make a difference to me. If it's a good story, it's a good story. If you can make me feel like I'm in that world, that's all I expect. And so that's kind of my attitude towards Star Wars, where it was like, oh, these prequels are coming out. That will allow me to go back into that world. And they came out and they didn't. Beyond the, the bad acting and the, the bad stories and everything else that everybody knows sucks about those things, it just didn't make me feel like I was watching something in the Star Wars universe. It didn't matter like what they said or what they referenced. It did not feel like I was in that world. But it's a good thing that you know if those movies had been amazing, if the Star Wars prequels had been amazing, I might have just been a Star Wars nerd for the rest of my life. Like, I might have just become that person who's just really into Star Wars for the rest of his life. And I think it's better that I didn't become that person. I think it's better that... And it's also a good, like, coming-of-age thing. Like, oh, this thing that you thought was perfect can be ruined. Like, not that the prequels ruined the originals, but just this brand. Like, I thought the Star Wars brand was perfect. And then it got tarnished and I was like, this is a good lesson. I mean, in retrospect, it's like, that was a good lesson because it meant that, oh, this thing that you thought had been done, it was over and done and it was done so perfectly. It turns out you can actually taint that thing by trying to do more, by being progressive. And you can even see where George Lucas exhibited these progressive tendencies by being like, you know what? My movies were insanely popular decade like a 15 years ago. I made these movies that were insanely ins- you know just magically popular something that was far more than the sum of its parts this true it's a phenomenon Star Wars is a phenomenon by the very definition of its uh, very definition of the word and George Lucas even then said this thing that everybody felt was perfect I'm going to go back and add things to it and edit it you know with the special editions you know that to me is like a progressive sort of tendency to be like we can do more with this oh we have this new technology cgi let's go back and let's edit that let's edit that thing that everybody thinks is perfect and the conservative says star wars was already perfect why would you mess with it why would you take these movies that were already done and perfect and then george lucas says well in in the back of my mind i always thought they could be more perfect So you can see where that same battle plays out just with George Lucas, where he's revising something that everybody already considered done, and he actually tainted it for people, the way that he's continually meddled in that. And like a true progressive in in the modern liberal sense, like a true neoliberal, George Lucas has made the original versions very difficult to get. The version of Star Wars that plays on TV, the version of Star Wars that you find in most stores, are the special editions. They're the ones where he's edited and retconned things. And so he's even censored the conservative version of Star Wars, which is funny. And he did it years ago. Just kind of funny. I'm sure Disney's re-released you know, the original versions and all that, because... There's a huge market for these things that everybody already considered perfect, it turns out. But uh, with Star Wars, like as a kid, you know, just me myself going through it. Like I I was fortunately liberated from Star Wars by the fact that the prequel sucked because it it allowed me to get into music and other interests. Because if I had three new movies that ruled, I might have just been obsessed with those. I might have just committed myself to being a Star Wars nerd the rest of my life. And I still am in some ways. So I think it could have gone really bad if those movies were good. My life would have been worse if the Star Wars prequels were good. I was going through puberty at the time. It was time to be interested in other things, clearly. And then I think the... The later ones I saw, and I haven't seen them all, but like when I saw The Force Awakens in the theater, I think what bothered me so much about it is it seemed like they were saying, hey, we heard you're a a conservative Star Wars fan. We're going to make a conservative Star Wars movie for you. It's going to be just like the old ones. It's going to feel like the old ones. And you watch it and it wasn't. It was masquerading as that. And it, you could see where it was heavily affected by modern Hollywood, too. But there was something extra insulting about it, because it, I felt like it was communicating like, hey, this is what you like, isn't it? It's kind of vintage. Doesn't this feel like the old ones? Like everything about it was winking at you, saying, doesn't this feel like, doesn't this remind you of, doesn't this, doesn't this, doesn't this? You know, that every moment of it felt that way for me. So sometimes that can be more insulting. Sometimes it can be more insulting when something wears the dead corpse of something else, especially its former self. And uh, I am fascinated, though, by the way that that tendency plays out in you because... Before we went into the Star Wars talk, I was just saying, though, how my natural tendency is to be kind of cynical, skeptical, wary of things that are changing or new. And, you know, with Star Wars, I was young enough when the prequels came out that I didn't judge them beforehand. I was just excited. And that was a lesson, too. I mean, that was sort of a lesson in that. Like, that's sort of like, because, I mean, (laughs) it's sort of a blessing and a curse, when something turns out to be what you expected where like when you expect a movie to be bad and it is bad on one hand it confirms like it's like oh i was right but it's not a good feeling because like you were right about something that sucked you were right that something was going to be bad and it was bad and you should never feel pleasure about that some people do some people do operate from that space where it's like oh uh I thought it was going to be bad, and it was bad, and I'm happy that it's bad because it makes me feel like I was right. And you see that a lot with conservatives, too, politically. Where like You'll see them almost be giddy when, con- when progressives do something that angers them. Because it's, it's a chance to... Uh, it confirmed my suspicions... But, you know, Star Wars was a good lesson for me because I didn't suspect anything. I just thought, oh, there's new Star Wars. Why would I not want that? Why would I not want that? And then it was a lesson that, oh, I, that's why I don't want it. And then more and more as you go through life and you develop more taste, like as your taste in things becomes more nuanced, as you be- become more aware of the things you're consuming, you start to say, huh, you know... This whole new things coming out thing, this whole new releases thing, it's not as great as it sounds. And sometimes it takes away from something that was already perfect. And that's why I have this great appreciation for things that just end. Like when a band just does one or two albums and those albums are perfect, I'm not the person who sits there saying... Oh, you never know what could have been. Dude, what if they, dude, what if Ripping Corpse did record that second album? What if they finished it? Dude, Ripping, I'm not even a big Ripping Corpse fan, but they just came to mind because they're a band who released like one album that came out and, you know, it had a cult following. And then I think they never finished their second album or something. There's some story like that. Why they come to mind, I have no idea. The shit that gets stuck in your mind and you pull out, you know, who knows. Um, But, you know, it's just that sort of thing where, you know, there's a certain sort of person who's like, man, they ended that too early. Damn, they only did one season of Freaks and Geeks. One of the reasons Freaks and Geeks to me is such a great show is because it's only one season. That's a lot of material. Like when you think about it, the fact that a movie that you love might be an hour and a half, two hours. The fact that a show like Freaks and Geeks is hours, and sure it ends, but it ends on a good note. It doesn't end on a cliffhanger. It's a good way to end it. You're not left really having any more questions. You just got exposed to this little world, and it's funny, and it, you know it's weird, and it's just you know that was, that was a good show. I haven't watched it in a long time, but. I always like the fact that it's just one season because it's like, why add more to that? And yeah, there's business reasons for that. It's not like they said, oh, we 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 nailed it. That was perfect. Freaks and geeks, it's not like they said, oh, you guys were you you guys did that so well that we're just gonna end the show now. You know, it's not like the, the studio, it's not like the network said that. Oh, the show was so good that we just thought we'd end it. Usually networks say the show was so good or it was so popular we're just going to do it forever because TV shows are maybe one of the best examples of how silly that idea is of doing something forever just because it worked once. And you see almost all shows become worse, if not much worse, the longer they're on. But the idea is like, we're going to do this until it's bad. And there's money involved. You know, obviously when you get into tv and networks and all of that a huge incentive is money so the idea is that we're going to try to make money off of this as long as possible but i don't think it's just that and the reason i don't think it's just that is because you say you see this same process play out indefinitely in all kinds of number of ways because it'd be one thing if people who let's say they had a band who hit it big and so they're guaranteed a living Like even a band who made it moderately big, like you're guaranteed a certain status, maybe a certain living, a certain basic quality of life because you were in this band that did something noteworthy. And so there's an incentive there to keep doing it because the incentive isn't just the creative act itself. The incentive is also, this gets me other things, whether it's just status, whether it's status and money whether it's something else, women, you know, it could be anything. But it's like, I'm going to keep doing this because the name is established and I don't have any reason to stop. But it's not just people. I mean, you see it even with the underground. You see it even with people who don't have to. Even people who don't have to do that, who have really no other incentive beyond the creative act. You'll see where they'll just keep doing things forever, too. It's like, this is what I do, so I'm going to do it forever. Like, people talk about that AI scenario where, you know, if you tell AI or you tell like a robot or a machine to do nothing but make paper clips, how it might not malfunction, but it might interpret that as like, oh, I need to make as many paper clips as possible. So it starts turning everything into a paper clip. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but that's sort of this. This AI scenario that people talk about, where like a machine that's programmed to make paper clips might eventually turn the whole world into paper clips. But it, we almost get that way ourselves, where it's like, oh, I'm a musician, I'm in a band, and it has this name. So I'm just going to keep doing that forever. Everything I do is going to be that, I'm going to make everything into that. I'm just going to keep doing this because this is what I do. I was programmed to record music under this band name, under this persona. And so I'm just going to do that forever because there's nobody telling me not to. There's nobody stopping me. There's no conservative impulse saying, I don't know if I need to do this. But then, I mean, I'm not being fair because there's tons of people who do do that. There are tons of people who say, I've expressed everything I wanted to express with this and I'm done so people do opt out i mean you see it even with actors you see it with even with completely different types of art where actors who have already made plenty of money just keep acting even in shitty roles they just the idea is that oh i'm an actor so what i do is i just act forever i just keep acting And that person might genuinely love acting, or they might want even more money. You know, there might be incentives, again, but there's also this sort of presumption that, like, why wouldn't you just keep doing it? That's just what you do as a human. You just keep doing the thing that you started doing once. I'm getting kind of silly here. This, this discussion is turning kind of silly. But but then when you have an actor like Joe Pesci, and granted, he kind of came out of retirement, but he's one of those actors where some years back, Joe Pesci said, I'm retiring from acting, and he didn't act for a long time. You know, whereas other people will say they're going into retirement, and then they're they're out of retirement in a year, if that. You know, creative people in particular... And I do think some of that does play into the conservative versus progressive tendencies in a person. Not as perfectly as maybe some of the other things I've talked about here. It doesn't fit quite as well necessarily with that. But I think those same battles are going on inside of you. You know, because it's a conservative tendency to not take risks to lay a foundation and not take risks. And some of this could, you know, I don't want to go too far into this, but some of this too could relate to genetics. It could relate to even your ethnic background. I don't know. You know, I may may have told the story on here, but I met a guy named John Erickson who was a, a much older person with pretty much my exact heritage. Like he had grandparents who were parts who were he had a grand uh, like one of his grandparents was from sweden another one was from norway they met in north dakota or south dakota they came to ballard washington then he moved to the east side of seattle uh the, the east side suburbs and that's the exact story of my great grandparents is that they one of them was from Sweden. One of them was from Norway. They moved to one of the Dakotas. And that's not a coincidence. There were colonies there. There were Scandinavian colonies in the Dakotas. And then Ballard was a major Scandinavian colony, a major one. And uh, so it's it's not a coincidence that his family all went to the same places. But I met him, and he, so he had this very similar story, even though he's like 40 years older than I am, 50 years older than I am. And his name's John Erickson, which is funny because my name's Eric John Stonefelt. J O N. John J O N. So, John Erickson. J O N. Erickson. Eric John Stonefelt. It's like this weird old mirror image of myself or something. But this guy, he told me a story where he went to Sweden, I believe it was, and he was checking out the farms and the farmland. And he noticed that every farm already had the foundation for another barn built, but it wasn't being built. It wasn't like the construction wasn't underway. It was just when they build their first barn, they also build the foundation for a second barn. And he said, it was explained to him while he was there that the reason for that, the reason why everybody was doing that, is because the idea is that if something happens to your first barn, you already have the foundation built for the second barn. And then you could just easily build it up from there. And he, he explained that to me. And he made it, you know, he didn't he didn't tell me why he was telling me that. But he, he was he was the way he was saying it, I just knew I just knew he meant something by it. You know, almost philosophical, I'll say it. You know, I think he, I could tell he kind of meant something philosophical. Like he expected that to resonate with me. And it absolutely did. Like when he said that, I was just like, wow, that's, that I relate to that heavily. Not because I'm always prepared, but just that mindset of like, let's build the other foundation while we build this first foundation. Because there's a good chance we're eventually going to need it. There's a good chance we're going to have to build a second barn or that something is going to happen to this barn. And it's much easier just to have the foundation built for a new one. It made perfect sense to me. And it it was an interesting moment because here I was talking to this guy where his bloodline is identical to mine in the sense that like his family came from the same places. They moved to multiple places in the United States that my ancestors lived and then here we were we ended up in olympia washington he was my good friend's landlord and she would have parties and she would invite him and he would drink wine and he would act creepy toward girls like one time he proposed to this girl who i think was a lesbian actually but he was talking to this younger girl i mean my age but much younger than him and he was wine drunk and he you know he every time i saw that guy he was wine drunk but uh when he loved roy orbison he really was like some alternate future me because he was really like one time we went out to dinner with him or like he came to like this party that we had at a, at a restaurant for like a friend to celebrate like a friend's something going on in a friend's life. And he was with us and he got too drunk and then he couldn't drive home. So people were trying to arrange for him to get a, a ride home. And like while we were like taking while we were going out to the car, he like snuck off and we didn't know where he went and he's an old guy. So, you know, we were concerned and my friends found him and he'd gotten in his car, but he was just sitting there with the car off, listening to Roy Orbison and getting really emotional. Like he and his wife had recently divorced. So this guy had a lot going on, but John Erickson, I had a lot going on. (laughs) I I still have a lot going on, but uh, he John Erickson's family, like, followed the exact trajectory, and here we end up, because he's my friend's landlord, like, we end up at this party in Olympia, Washington, where he's just, like, drunkenly talking about farmers laying two foundations for their barns in Sweden, but, like, in that moment, as he was explaining, like, why they built these two foundations, it was, like, this weird, like, I felt ultra connected to my ethnic roots, I guess you could say. Like more than even like any, you know, I've gone to Norway Day here multiple years in a row. We have a Norway Day here. It's just, it's like a, you know, it's the only place where you'll still see like 50 year old men with long hair and like wolf shirts and stuff that aren't ironic. You know, it's like one of the only places you'll go. And it's like, it's like cosplaying for old people too. Cause you have like a bunch of like old ladies who wear traditional Norwegian attire, but it's, it's a very humble event. I love it, but it's very humble. But anyway, uh, with uh, yeah, I've been to events like that. I'm interested in a lot of Scandinavian music and art. I feel like I'm fairly connected with that. You know, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I'm ignorant of, but I feel fair, and I, I felt this way my entire life. I feel a pretty strong connection with my Scandinavian roots. But still, this story, hearing the story about Scandinavian farmers building two foundations at once, that moment is like one of the most connected feelings I've had to my roots. I was just like, there is a mindset. There is something. Why does that resonate with me so much? And why is this guy, why did he choose that story? Because he, and then he said, we talked about it. And he was saying like, when he saw that, and, and too, to even point it out, like he's on this trip to a foreign country and there's all kinds of things he could talk about, but he notices the extra foundations on these different farms and he makes it a point to ask somebody about it. So it's like it stood out to him at the time. The answer stood out to him. Out of all of the stories he could possibly tell me about his travels in Scandinavia, he tells me that one. And that story resonated deeply with me. It resonated deeply in my blood, you could say. And so that to me was crazy. That to me is magic. Like that to me is sort of magic. The fact that that message could be transmitted and it could make me feel something that deeply. Something that I otherwise wouldn't think of as like something cool about my people. Like if you were to ask me like, oh, what's something cool about your people? Like Vikings, you know, there's all sorts of obviously cool things you could talk about. But I, you know, thinking about the fact that the farmer's, Build two foundations at once. That wouldn't have been on my list. I wouldn't have ever thought of it. And I wouldn't have also expected it to resonate with me. Like I don't look at Vikings. And that doesn't resonate with me that deeply. Sometimes it does. But in general. You know Vikings have been pimped out. Vikings have been completely pimped out. By pop culture. And I don't even care. It's cool. It's cool enough. Whatever. Um. But uh you know and for all I know he was bullshitting. <laughs> maybe maybe it's not even true. Maybe he just made it up. Maybe he was like I'm going to invent a story about you know farmers building two foundations on their property. You know, he could have been bullshitting and I'm just and it resonated. Oh, it just shows that bullshit resonates. No, I think I don't think he made it up. And I I wouldn't be able to even break down why that meant something to me. But it did. And is that a conservative tendency, building two foundations? I don't know. What got me on this tangent is just the idea that there might be tendencies in the group to which you belong. You know, we're getting a lot of mixed messages about that these days. And I think you can, that's something that you can decide on your own. Nobody has to tell you that. Like, if you think there are certain qualities that your particular background, your particular mix, like, if you think you have certain qualities that are not necessarily exclusive to your people, but maybe more common or maybe more at the forefront, you know, that's something that, like, it's up to you, really. Like, if you notice something, if you feel something, it's totally up to you, and so I don't understand why you would listen to somebody else about that. I don't think there's any reason honestly to listen to somebody else for any reason about that cuz it's something that you can only feel. And you can't invent the moments where something resonates. And so just to I kind of tie up this episode that's gone on a lot longer than I planned, always the story. I need to get to bed here, but got a show to do apparently. But long story short, you know, you have these competing conservative and progressive tendencies and everything has those in them. You can find it in pretty much anything. The need to keep pushing and expanding with the pretense that things will be better if you do that. But then that part of you that says, well, things will be better if I just stick to doing what has already worked. And that's the political conversation that plays out. That's as above, so below. Again, you know, that sort of, I wouldn't even call it a dilemma. I think you have to remove the idea that there is any dilemma there. I think you have to remove the idea that anything is truly contradicting anything else. That any of that is truly hypocritical. Because it's a movement. And sometimes that, sometimes one of those tendencies... Will benefit a situation more than the other one. And for me, the way this plays out creatively is really weird and could be subject of another episode, but I probably won't subject anybody to that. But the way this plays out for me creatively is weird because I'm a naturally conservative person and that's not typically associated with creativity. That's not typically associated with artists, but because I am a naturally conservative person, when it just even comes to something like making art, Like, I'm always at war with myself over whether or not to even make art, you know, whether or not to even expand. Like, because you think about that with an artist, like, why not just rest on what I've already done? Or why not just keep doing the exact same thing the exact same way I did it? What is it about making art and being creative that makes you want to keep changing it? And and some people don't, like some people find the formula that works for them or that they just genuinely like, and they just keep doing that forever. Some people do it well. Sometimes they just get redundant. Sometimes it gets boring, but some people do find a formula and they stick to it. But I think with most creative people, there is a desire to keep expanding and changing. And, uh, you know, for me personally, like I don't know. I, I don't, it's not something that crosses my mind, but I think it plays out more on the level of like whether or not to do anything at all. Like, I don't, I don't feel like it plays out while I'm doing something creative. Like when I've committed to doing something creative, all bets are off. Like it's going to be what it's going to be. And a lot of times it's going to be in line with what I've already done. Cause it's like, we, we can only do so much. We have certain ticks We have certain places we rest, we have certain limitations, skill limitations, but you know, but it does play out more like just for me, just on the level of like, whether or not I want to even do something. Cause there is something inside of me that will say like, you've already made your statement. What else do you need to say? What else are you going to do? Trying to keep doing things or like doing more with what you have already done. Like, what are you trying to get out of that? Like, and at what point is that going to undermine, you know, at what point are you going to jump the shark? Because that's one of the risks of simply continuing on. That's one of the risks of pushing forward is that you might just jump the shark. (laughs) And so there's a part of the conservative tendency that's like, how about if we don't jump the shark and the way that we avoid jumping the shark is by not even going to the beach today. and i don't know i mean if people could control whether or not they jumped the shark they wouldn't but it happens a lot it happens to a lot of people and it happens the more that you do things the more that you keep trying to push things forward and so maybe the way that you avoid that is by stopping when you are when you know i mean your intuition has to tell you i would think i think your intuition would have to tell you on some level If you're getting close to the beach, grabbing a surfboard or whatever, putting water skis on, he jumps the shark on water skis. It's like, oh, you're putting the water skis on your feet. I mean, on some level, if you're listening to your intuition, I feel like you have to recognize those moments. Like, I I feel like as a creative person, as someone who thinks about what you do, if you're self-aware at all, I feel like... You would have to have moments where you say to yourself, "Oh, I'm at the beach right now. How did I get here?" And then you're like, "Oh, I'm, I'm strapping water skis on my feet. Oh, I'm, I'm going into the water. I'm grabbing hold of the uh, the line that's going to drag me from the boat. Oh, the boat's driving, and I, I'm on water skis. You know, there's a jump over there, and it looks like there's a oh, there's a shark fin in a an enclosed area." And the boat is taking me toward it. Like, you have a lot of opportunities to not jump the shark up to that point. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I've already jumped the shark. Maybe I am proof to myself that I've already jumped the shark and I didn't even know it. Maybe you don't even know it until it's too late. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Like, maybe you don't even know you've jumped the shark when you do. But maybe I'm just... Maybe I'm, like, really... uh, in, you know maybe i'm naive and innocent about this whole jumping the shark thing and i'm not aware of just the fact that it happens without you even knowing but i think there is a conservative tendency in you that says hey maybe we shouldn't be putting these water skis on maybe we should go back home maybe we should go back home and like just get back into bed do something at home. Not be jumping sharks with your water skis, but you no, know, there's a conservative tendency that should be there saying like, maybe we, we shouldn't do this and uh, whether that's the right thing or not, like maybe, maybe we need people to jump the shark. Maybe just part of life. Maybe it's like dying. The one thing you can count on is dying. Maybe the other thing you can count on is jumping the shark two things like it's not death and taxes there's that saying like oh the the two things that you can count on in life are death and taxes my version of that is the two things you can count on in life are death and jumping the shark and so maybe you should get like a healthy attitude about it like dying where you say to yourself you know what i'm gonna die someday and i have to accept that so i'm gonna try to live as good of a life as i can up until that point I'm gonna to try to do the right thing up until that point to make myself happy, to make other people happy, to make this life interesting and meaningful. Maybe it's the same thing with jumping the shark. Someday I will jump the shark. And so I'm gonna do my best to make everything as right as I possibly can up until that point. And maybe it's not actually bad. Maybe there is some relief. Maybe when you finally jump the shark, and you realize it, you suddenly become free. You no longer have that weighing over your head. You're no longer worried about it. So maybe there is something beautiful and great about jumping the shark. Maybe it's just as beautiful as death, learning to accept the inevitability of death, learning to accept the inevitability of those water skis being on your feet gliding just gliding in the air with old, with old jaws under you jaws is down there and you just think as soon as i land i never have to worry about jumping the shark again because i'm totally free i'm totally liberated i've made my cycle I've completed my cycle. This land is mine. God gave this land to me.